Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, in Parsha Truma this morning. We are beginning the Parshiot dealing with instructions for building the Mishkan. Then, of course, we're going to get everything reiterated when they make the Mishkan, when they build the Mishkan. So uh, clearly the Mishkan, uh, the tabernacle, is a huge deal uh, in our tradition. Um, otherwise, Torah, that is usually very terse and very succinct, would not spend this kind of time on both the details of the instructions, the minutiae of the details of the instructions, as well as those same minutia being repeated uh, when it comes to the building and erection of the Mishkan. Uh, Mishkan is the tabernacle. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about it this morning. Um, but really this morning, because you know that my new experiment with Torah study is that I'm just going where I want. <laughs> so um, it seems to be going well so far. Uh, and so we're really going to stay with the rabbinic tradition, the commentary, the midrashim, um, interpretations around the first few verses of this parsha. Um, and y'all have heard these concepts before who have been studying Torah here at KI, and you may know them from elsewhere, uh, but it's really some of the, for me, some of the most profound and beautiful teachings we have about how to take the literal verses of scripture uh, and turn them into spiritual instruction for us that has nothing to do with the original intention of the verses. And that's the brilliance of Judaism. It's the brilliance of the rabbis. It's why Torah continues to resonate for us is because that's what they continue to do, to turn it on its head. Um, turn it and turn it and turn it, the rabbis say, for all things are in it. All right, so we are in Exodus. The book of Exodus, we are in chapter 25. God speaks to Moshe and says, so speak to the people Israel, and it looks a little bit like a Department of Redundancy Department thing here in the Hebrew, and they will take for me, truma, gift, from every person whose heart is Yidveno, so every person whose heart is voluntary, who are, what does the English say here? Muso moved, okay? Tikhu et trumatai, from trumati, from them will you take my truma. So truma from the word rama, right? To lift up, rama, high, right? So we have the bama in there. The Bama, so you are Rama, right? On the Bama, you are Rama. So all of this language about up, about lifting up, it is universal human language to talk about something being elevated as being important, sacred sometimes, right? Um, it, it is almost terrestrial human culture um, to use this language of up, you know, this vertical imagery. David? Aliyah is also, a, does that... Aliyah means what exactly? To go up. So it's the same. La'alot. It's from the Hebrew verb la'alot, to go up. Okay. Different shorash. Same idea, different shorash. So truma. So this language of lifting, in some of the um, rituals we're going to see in Leviticus, they actually lift the offering, um, that this is a way of the priest acknowledging, right, that, that ownership has been transferred, right, the owner of the animal or whatever puts their hands on the animal, then it's put in the priest's hands. This demonstrates a transfer of that property from the person to whom? God. To God. The priest stands in for God. The priest is the agent. The, the agent receives the gift on behalf of God, right, and then lifts it to acknowledge that this now belongs to um, the divine. All right. So, but in this sense. So that's the origins of this word. But this word really means gift, right? This is something you're going to give, this truma. So there's everyone whose heart is voluntary is going to give a, a truma. Isn't it true? Like lead truma. 
Yes. So, so modern Hebrew took this, litrom, oh. to donate. What do you do with a gift? What's the verbiage? If you're going to turn a noun into a verb, you gift it. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. All right, so, vizot hatruma asher tam. And here is the truma I'm interested in, says God. Zahav, bechesef, unchoshet. So, gold, silver, and copper. God's no dummy. Utchelet v'argaman. So, and you're gonna bring blue, th- these words. We we just have to guess with some of the English around these words, but essentially the family of blue, purple, and crimson, um, yarn, fine linen, and goat's hair, tanned ramskins. This is not what you think. Dolphin skins and acacia wood. Um, this is probably a mustard or tan colored uh, hide that they're calling dolphin. Shemen lemaor, oil for lighting, besamim, spices, right? La shemen hamishcha. So for the oil that is mishcha, anointing oil, right? The same root as what word, of course? What is this word? You know this word. Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. Here it is. This is this is the origin of that term. Mashiach, the one who is anointed. So the shemen hamishcha, the, the shemen, the oil for anointing. So that's what the basamim are for. That's what the incense is for or the spices. And for burning, right, um, the kinds that you burn that smell good, that make a nice smoke that smells good. Lapis lazuli and other stones for setting, for the aphod and for the breast piece. So this is going to be on the high priest. The asuli mikdash. And they shall make for me a mikdash. So what is the shoresh of this word, mikdash? Mm-hmm. Kodesh. So uh, we want to jump in and always use our English um, to translate, it's not always the best language um, in which to render the Hebrew concept. Kodesh being a perfect example, because in English we say what for Kodesh? Holy. This is not Hebrew. <laughs> Kadosh in Hebrew is that which is set aside, that which is set apart, meaning only for the purposes of relating in some way to the divine. So if we want to call that holy, okay, not a great translation, but that which is set aside. So the mikdash, when you put that mem in front of kuf dalad shin, so kadosh, you put the mem in front of it, it is something that's about holiness. This is a space that's about being set aside for purposes of relating to the divine. So they shall make for me mikdash, Something set apart, a space set apart. V'shachanti b'tocham. This vav is sort of a conjunctive vav, but it, not really. So this vav, instead of meaning and or but, so the conjunctive or disjunctive vav, really is is a, is a is more about. Um, you would say in English, so that. Vasuli mikdash, they shall make for me a mikdash, right? A place set apart. Vushrachanti bitocham, that I might dwell. Now you have to figure out how to translate bitocham, right? So if it were saying to dwell among the nation, to be in the nation, what would that say? Bishachanti bitocho, that I may dwell in it. But, God forbid, we should think that's talking about the Mikdash, right? So even Torah is a little concerned, right? I think, maybe later, but possibly, um, that don't think they're building me the Mikdash so I can dwell in it. God forbid. They're going to make for me a Mikdash so I can dwell in them, in the midst of the people is how it usually gets translated. But it would have made more sense to say in it, the nation, if that's what it meant. That's not what it says, right? So rabbinic tradition saw this as an engraved invitation. 
um, and wrote reams of commentaries saying it should have said betocho in it, the people. It doesn't say that. It says betocham, that I may dwell in them, meaning each of them. Okay, so we're going to see where they go with that. So l'shachen, to dwell, right? Over there, and I'm now going to hear shchuna, right? Mm-hmm, right? Okay. That modern Hebrew from this. L'shachen, to dwell. The rabbinic tradition took that and took that concept and turned it into one of the ways of talking about the presence of God. You all know it. It is the Shekhinah. Whenever we hear about the Shekhinah, right? Tachat kanfei ha-Shekhinah. May you be blessed beneath the wings of the Shekhinah. It is from this concept of dwelling within them, it, whatever. It is an indwellingness that becomes a way of understanding the divine. The divine presence that is in each of us becomes the Shekhinah. For the rabbis who are living under Zoroastrianism, who are living under black and white, good and bad, a very binary system in their theology in Zoroastrianism, the rabbis are very influenced by this by wanting to not have you know, either or. It is all one. However, within the one, there is the masculine and the feminine. Shekhinah is the feminine aspect of the divine, the Kadosh Baruch Hu, the KBH. The KBH, George, is the masculine of the divine. Yes? Of course. <laughs> Our job is to do everything we can to bring those two together. So on Shabbat, who do we greet? Whose bride? <laughs> So you might, whose bride? <laughs> really? No, Shabbat is the bride. <laughs> it's God's bride. Let's be very clear. It is the bride of the Kaddish Baruch Hu. We welcome the Shekhinah. We welcome the Shabbat, which is the bride of the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And when we do that properly, those two elements in the universe come together and cause lots of good things. To happen. Yes. Why is it then? Why Melech? Huh? Melech Haolam. Why? why, What's the focus on Melech, the king? It should be queen, right? Or both? What in the in the prayers of Melech Haolam constantly? Yeah. Yeah. Because God is mostly male. Come on. Okay. Right. We're talking patriarchy here. Like God is mostly male. There is a divine component that is female, not equal. Chas v'shalom. God forbid. Not equal, but part of divinity is a feminine expression, and that is the Shekhinah. This is like a consort. Okay. Yep. A holdover. Yes. The the instinct, the impulse um, for a consort never went away. We know that. We know all through biblical Israel there is evidence for Asherah everywhere. In Kuntilat Adrud, it says to Yud Hei and his Asherah. It is very clear that the yearning for worshiping the feminine divine never went away. <laughs> Good, says Judah. The prophets didn't think so. Um, they were very upset by this. But that's the other proof we have that it never went away, is that we have all of these prophets yelling and screaming about it. So if they're talking about Asherah and Baal and all of these other images that the Israelites were worshiping going astray, it means... They had a Christmas tree in the living room, and it never went away. So, um, so the so in in the biblical period, it's Asherah. You know, it's these other Ashtarte, Ishtar. We're coming up on Purim. Anybody see a connection? Anybody? Absolutely. Sorry, I'm saying Ishtar, Esther. Ishtar is Esther. Mordechai would be Marduk, the chief Babylonian god. And goddess. There is not an accident, people. Um, Ishtar. The, in, the impulse never goes away to worship the feminine divine. We dress her up in other clothes. You know, we talk about it lots of different ways, but Esther is absolutely Ishtar. So, um, so, so we have our Ishtar and our Marduk story too. 
like not to be outdone by the Babylonians amongst whom we lived, right? So Shekhinah, this is uh, the origins of Shekhinah. Um, uh, like I said, the instinct is Asherah in the biblical period, those kinds of things. And then the rabbis, for the rabbis, it becomes Shekhinah. Um, according to everything that I will show you, singular, eight tavnit hamishkan, so everything that I will show you, singular, the pattern uh, to build the Mishkan itself, and the pattern of all its vessels, and so shall y'all do. All right. Even the author here knows those don't match. Why is it singular and then plural? So, I will show you singular, masculine, and so shall y'all do. Okay? So the rabbis, again, this is an engraved invitation. It can't be wrong, God forbid. Right? This can't be a mistake. Their editors were just fine. They have really good editors. The editor knows this is not, it doesn't match. Is it you or y'all? Okay. We're going to see what they do. So we know what happens, right? We know that, that the instruction involves making an arc of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. That it will be overlaid with pure gold, overlaid inside and out, and make upon it a gold molding roundabout. Cast four gold rings for it to be attached to its four feet, two rings on one side, two on the other. Make poles of acacia wood. You're getting right the introduction to the language of the instructions to build a mishkan. Very detailed. Um, every single thing is described. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed and deposit the, in the ark the tablets of the pact which I gave you. You shall make a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Make two kruvim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the cover. Make one keruv at one end and the other at the other end. Of one piece with the cover shall you make the kruvim at its two ends. The kruvim shall have their wings spread out above shielding the cover with their wings. They shall confront each other, the faces of the Kruvim being turned toward the cover. Sounds like it's very straightforward. Nobody knows how to like make sense of this. Place the cover on top of the ark after depositing inside the ark the pack that I will give you. There I will meet with you, and I will impart to you from above the cover, from between the two Kruvim that are on top of the ark of the pact, all that I will command you concerning the Israelite people. It goes on and on and on and on and on. So we're still in it next week, um, even, right? So even if you read the whole Parsha, all three or four chapters, we got next week too. Um, lots of detail. Okay. So, but we're not going to go to the details today. You've done that with me before when we've, remember when I put up the big pictures on the, in the YouTube video, right? That amazing YouTube video. Um, we're not doing that today. All right. We're going to go to some of the commentary on the verses that we read. So we're looking at God speaks to Moshe saying, right? Speak to the people of Israel. We're back at verse one of chapter 25. Tell them that they shall take for me truma from each person whose heart, right, is open to that. Now, remember, there is going to be a Jew tax. There is going to be a tax. Not everything that makes the Mishkan is voluntary. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, Bert. Um, not everything is voluntary. <coughs> huh. There is going to be a half shekel tax. So everybody has to opt in. They don't have a choice. Everybody has to pay. Everybody has to support the communal building project. Um, but this part, all of these things, all of these materials are only from people who voluntarily give. Okay? So let's look at Rabbi Pamela Wax. In parsing verse 2 of chapter 25, so you remember verse 2? Tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts, right? You shall accept gifts from everyone who's moved. Rashi tries to understand why that word li, for me, is necessary, right? So we were talking about Department of Redundancy Department. Who else would it be for? If it's going to the Mikdash, who else would it be for? Why does it have to say, um, give to me, take for me from among the people gifts. Why not just say, speak to the children of Israel that they take truma? Rashi says that here means lishmi, 
solely for my sake. In other words, the word indicates the importance of the contribution as an act that is serving God wholeheartedly. If there is any self-regard or self-gratification in the act of giving, then it can't possibly be solely for God's sake. Take for me, meaning exclusively for the purpose of giving it to me. That's why the word Lee is added, because you shouldn't think, well, yeah, it's for God, but also I'll get my name on a building. Exclusively for me means, according to the rabbinic tradition, there is no self-gratification in the act of giving. We would not exist if all we took from the people was truma. Let's be clear. This building and all the things that happened within it would not exist. So the rabbis are setting a very high bar for what truma here means. Their fantasy is that the people who gave, gave that way. Um, never happened in the history of the Jewish people, I can promise you. But the point is they take this as instruction. This is how we're supposed to give. They know it's, they know it's not easy. So she brings, uh, the teaching of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, who says, Chazal, which is, uh, acronym for Chachamenu Zichronam Livracha, our sages of blessed memory, have described each and every person as a miniature Mishkan, wherein the divine presence dwells. Because that's literally what it said. Make me a Mikdash that I may dwell in them. The rabbis take this very seriously. The focus of the Mishkan was the Torah, embodied in the ark containing the tablets. We just read, right? We just read that. The housing for this ark was a mishkan. So the, the whole point, is the teaching here from um, Chaim Shmulevitz, is the whole point is the ark with the instruction about how we're supposed to live and the kind of society we're supposed to build. That's the whole point. The mikdash is the structure around the ark. Okay. Um, and of course, for the rabbis, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's the rest of the Torah that Moshe got on Sinai, right? The housing for this ark was a mishkan erected upon the twin pillars of lishma, purity of motive, and nedivat halev, generosity of heart. A person can make themselves into a mishkan when their essence is Torah and the cornerstones of their deeds are purity of motive and generosity of heart. The purity of motive is therefore an essential aspect of the generation of the generosity that is being required of the Israelites. And this is now Rabbi Pamela Wax. Like my benefactor in the Musar study group, their act of generosity had to be free of ego involvement for it to be a divinely inspired act of generosity. This is a difficult, nearly impossible level of generosity to cultivate. Yet we probably all have a couple of very vivid examples of either being the giver or the receiver of that kind of unmitigated generosity. How do we achieve it without involving or activating our own ego, our own sense of self-satisfaction and pride when we are generous, our own need for recognition and gratitude from the receiver, or our own sense of scarcity? That's the big question. That's that's the hard work. and if you think back to these a moment like this that she is referencing, a moment of having either received or knowing you have given in this way of complete generosity, you know that those moments tend to be life-changing. It is the people who give to us that way and in those moments. And when we are able to really do that with ego out of the way and to really just be present um, with complete Nadivut Lev, complete generosity and, and voluntariness of heart, um, that, that, that is where lives are changed. No, I just wanted to, I'm, I'm really struck by the comparison they're asked to give. I'm just seeing them in a. What's funny that you say that is Golden Calf hasn't happened yet. I, I know. It's coming. I, oh, it's coming. Wait, I thought it is next week or two weeks. Truma Titsave Kitisa. Kitisa is where Moshe breaks the tablets. Okay, so, but, but what, but, uh, but I yeah. pointed that out for a reason. Cause the rabbis, many of the rabbis 
say ein mukdamu meochar b'Torah. There is no early or late in Torah. It is not linear. It is not history. It is revelation. Therefore, you can move the pieces around and it does not change. It enhances the meaning. The rabbis, many of them, want to put the golden calf before this. They move the golden calf. They cut and paste it to here, to before here, just like last week to last week. Because then to your point, what does this become? It becomes the right way to do it. Uh, but, but, but it's even more interesting now that you've pointed out to have it the other way. So you try and get them to do it this way, and they they kind of misinterpret it or they kind of do it their own schmoey way, which is ten times worse. That seems closer to human nature, actually. Which is why I love these stories. The, the, this is one of my favorite parts of the Torah. Not that rabbis are supposed to have favorite parts of the Torah, God forbid. But I love them all. Th- this, is, this is why this is so powerful, because... Here's the instruction about how you're supposed to give. What you're supposed to do with your silver and gold, right? Moshe disappears. Moshe's late. What happens? They panic. And whenever we panic, we screw it all up. We take, you know, things we know are working, things we know we're supposed to do, the things we, the way we're supposed to do it. And what do we do? We completely mess it up. But, and also in the, while we're on the subject of out of order, I can't help but draw a parallel between the sort of um, internalness of God dwelling within you and the external need that they have to see the pillar of fire and all of that stuff. You know, it's almost like, okay, enough with this internal stuff. Like I need something I can see and follow at the same time. Which is the same impulse that brings us the golden calf. Yes, exactly. The same so, well, impulse. That's what I was going to say. So it's sort of fitting together. Yeah. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah, it's it's right. It's gorgeous. This is gorgeous stuff. Yeah. This is re and very much about human nature. Just act smart, fish, right? He'll tell you what is this again? The map of the psyche of the Jewish people. Yes. There you go. Um, and human nature. I I would add the rabbis are writing for human beings, right? It's not just the Jews. We have our particular, you know, shtiklach, but but in, but it's human nature in general that that they're instructing and and writing about. Next text, ugh, one of my favorites, Rabbi Shefa Gold, in writing about this, as artists of the holy, we are given the spiritual challenge of opening to the creative flow and becoming a clear channel for the divine will. To prepare for this purpose, we must heal our hearts that have contracted in stinginess born of fear. So step number one, if you want to be a channel for the divine, step one, deal with stinginess that comes out of fear. The way we grab at everything, mine, 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 my body, my daughter, my degree, my title, mine, 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 my car, my house, (laughs) right? Mine. Truma means gift. And ultimately the only gift we can give is ourselves our full and available presence in each and every moment of our lives. Giving everything means accepting this moment, making myself completely available for this experience of being human, all of it, the torturous grief and jubilant triumph. It means not hiding or shrinking away from the experience of this now. It is, after all, a two-way invitation that is being offered. I am making a home for God to dwell within me, and I am listening for God's invitation to come home, which is to know this world as God's house and to enter into it completely. With this gift of my presence, my wholeheartedness, I build the Mishkan. How else can I become a servant of the one? Don't read this as it's nice to give with an open heart. Rather, read, this is the only way you can build yourself as a Mishkan for the divine presence is by dealing first with the stinginess, the grasping, the clinging that comes from fear, including entering into this moment right now with whatever it entails, whatever it means. Um, that also we, we resist out of fear. Um, and that that really right is is the basis of so many of the ways we block what could be 
being vehicles, right, for for the divine is is our fear, and and our pain, our hurts, our wounds, and our fear that I think is a result of a lot of those woundings. Um, so I think Shefa's brilliant that way, um, you know, based of course on rabbinic tradition. Okay, Rabbi Rachel Goldenberg. When God instructs Moses to collect gifts from the Israelites for the building of the Mishkan, the word used for the gifts is truma, which comes from the verb to lift up. The purpose of this sanctuary is to create a dwelling place for divinity among the Israelites. On an individual level, the act of giving when it is done with awareness can lift us up on an internal level and create a home inside of us for divinity. Oops, big old space there. The act of giving expands the capacity within us to bring divinity out into the world. The Hasidic master, Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, teaches on these verses. We are all obliged to serve the creator in action and in thought. By means of our intention and holy thought, we raise up the Shekhinah from the dust. Our deeds are so that we will raise ourselves up to become better people. This is how we can interpret our verse, every person whose heart so moves him. This refers to thought by which you shall take up my elevation. That is, the Shekhinah will be raised up and exalted. These are the gifts that you shall accept from them. This is the inner elevation that we take for ourselves, which comes about through action. That is the sense of gold, silver, and copper, which signify sacred devotion. Wasn't that clear? In light of our Parsha and Levi Yitzchak's commentary, we can see the curiosity, generosity, and cheerfulness as trumot, as qualities to be lifted up within the self, first as thoughts, then as gifts of action towards others. According to the Zohar, the gold, silver, and copper gifts in our Parsha represent the three sfirot of Gevura, Chesed, and Tiferet, boundaries and judgment, love and beauty, and balance. When awareness is present, our actions can serve as conduits for these pure qualities to manifest in the world. Um, where's the microphone? Thank you, David. George wants to Well, given <laughs> that this, this is all about Shekinah, which is the feminine side, so that all these good qualities... So are you suggesting that, that, the, that God, the other parts of God, are bad qualities? No. I'm, saying, not, I'm not suggesting Good. That. I'm saying that this is what is interpreted. Shekhinah is the aspect of the divine that dwells within. Not feminine, then. It is feminine. The okay. indwelling presence of God is feminine. God is masculine. Big God, big cosmic God is masculine. The oh. tiny little part of God that dwells within each little tiny, very short-lived human is feminine. The creator is masculine. Is masculine. King of the universe is masculine. Good. Yeah. Good. Okay, good. George is relieved. He was worried. He was worried. Okay. Um, right. Okay, Mehmet. Uh, I'm going to upset George now. Okay, uh, good. Think, yeah, here we go. I think, as I think, there is a feminine side in each uh, male being as well. So George has his feminine side as well. So the two are in each and in every one of us. Yes. Regardless of Aspects our... of both, of course, are in both of us. Uh, and it is... it. And And by the way... The folks writing the commentaries, the folks reading into all of this were men. That's who's longing for the Shekhinah, by the way. It's men who want the Shabbat bride, the queen, Ishtar, (laughs) the Shekhinah to be in them, meaning them in her. It is very male heterosexual imagery. Or, to some, your of point. Them, or some of them to want point. to be the bride. Say, say again, Mama? Or perhaps some of them, maybe a tiny fraction, want to be the bride themselves. Oh, for sure. For sure, there is much homoeroticism that goes on in a base midrash. Are you kidding? They are with men all day, every day, 
They don't see women until they get home late at night who then serve them and then clear their plates away and spend the rest of the time in the kitchen washing the dishes and putting the children to bed. So it it is men living together in a male-centered world. Men only engage in intellectual stimulating conversation with men. And there is chevruta, these very intimate pair bonds of study that are formed. Chevruta is the model for Jewish study. You don't study alone. You study with your chevruta. And those were very intense relationships. And we are very clear from stuff in Talmud and elsewhere that homoeroticism is definitely a component of this. So for sure, for sure, many of them had the impulse to be the Shabbat bride, for sure. But they would, but, but of course, have to do everything to, right, twist it so that God forbid, right, that cannot be, that cannot happen. So they can't even think that, right? So they, things get tortured, right, to make it super hetero, right? I have a question. It's a rabbit hole. If you don't want to go down it, we don't have to. No, let's, uh, let's, let's see rabbit holes. Um, uh, the, the gender binary conversation aside, cause that's fascinating, but I'm thinking about all of these instructions for building the Mishkan. And I am curious cause you mentioned, uh, commandments that are clearly not at all a part of how Jews build synagogues today. Are there others that are very much a part of the teachings of how we should build our places of worship today and which ones do yes. they keep and which ones do they ignore and do different denominations or branches of Judaism do that differently? All right. So if you look here, you're looking inside the ark. Yes. What are you looking at? You are looking at Sifrei Torah. You are looking at silver. Fine uh, gems are on the on ones in the other ark. You are looking at what colors? Blue, purple, crimson, right? So clearly we have remnants of the instructions to build the Mishkan all over the Sifrei Torah in any synagogue you go to. All over the place. So we get the silver, we get, oh, and we get the, um, don't tell. Um, you hear that? Why do we put bells on these? Because the priests had bells on the hem of their garment so that the people could hear the priest going about their job because could the people see the priests? No. Are the people allowed in the Mishkan? No. No. Only the priests and the Levites could be in the sacred precinct. The people couldn't see. There was a huge fence, a huge curtain that was all the way around. I'll show you a picture of the of the Mishkan. Um, so all they could do was hear. What else could they do? They could smell. They could smell the sacrifices, maybe the incense, but they could smell steak on the barbecue. Um, constantly, right? That smell, reach nichoach, that smell is God's part of the sacrifice. That's what God gets, right? So all of these are um, vestiges of the mishkan, um, of the uh, of the tabernacle. But to your point, Emma Linda, there's a real tension in Judaism, in rabbinic Judaism. There is a tension between Israelite cult practice, which died with the destruction of the Second Temple, and keeping some of those symbols around. There is a very serious tension between that. The rabbis do not want synagogues in any way to be seen as doing what was done in the Mishkan or in the temple. God forbid. Why? Only Levites and priests can do that stuff. We don't have Levites and priests to do that anymore because we don't have a pure temple, right? We don't have the third temple. Messiah hasn't come. We don't have the day of judgment. Like, you know, we're all waiting around for the third temple. So until that happens within traditional Judaism, you can't go anywhere near those rituals. 
You're talking about sacrilege, like big time, like lightning from the sky sacrilege, right? Observant Jews won't step foot on the Temple Mount because what if they step on the place that only the priests and the Levites could be? Zappage. You can't step on those places. Jews, observant Jews do not go up there. So, so if you've got attention around, you can't go anywhere near Israelite cult religion. You, you have to be very careful then about where you can bring in continuity from the Mishkan. Does that make sense? So it's safe on the Torah. Because we're not, right? Torah is about learning. Torah is about teaching. Torah is about blah, 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 the word of God, blah, 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 blah. There's no confusion. Well, uh, we've had that conversation too. There's little confusion, right? That, that it's anything like cult practice, right? But everything else is gone. And we've said this a million times, but I'll say it again because I think it's worth repeating. Where was all of that preserved? In the Catholic Church. Israelite cult practice is preserved in Christianity. Sacrifice, eating the meat of the sacrifice. You're not supposed to drink the blood, so I don't know how they came up with that. But Because we're not supposed to drink blood or eat blood, right? So I don't know where that came from. But probably pagan tradition, right? So eating the sacrifice, right? Doing something with the blood of the sacrifice, the labor, like purifying oneself before one goes into that space, incense. All of it. The church was the new Mishkan. The church was the new temple. And the body of Christ as represented in Christians was the new Israel. Reformed Judaism was way more radical than Christianity. Christianity stayed with the symbols and the rituals of the Mishkan and the temple. Rabbinic Judaism was radical. It was a complete break. Not Christianity. Christianity stayed way closer to biblical Israelite worship than rabbinic Judaism, who left it all. Left all of it. We should have disappeared. The minute that second temple was destroyed, we should have disappeared or been Christian. Rabbinic Judaism was a radical move to claim to be Part of biblical Israelite cult practice? Really? Really? And people bought it. And here we are. So that's what we do. We reconstruct. So great question, Emelinda. Can I Thank ask you. you a question? Um, so this is one of the many things I don't understand about what's in the Torah. Um, Job why, security. What? Job security. <laughs> right. Why Why is there even a need, why is it necessary to build a dwelling place for the divine? I mean, it may it sort of anthropomorphizes God. I mean, God is not a person that needs a dwelling place. Like what, if being an all-being, then why why all these specifications about building a specific home for okay, God? Okay, I'm going to ask you, who's it for? According to the rabbis, who is this dwelling place for? God, no. For the for the Jewish people? Yes. So the rabbis answer, why sacrifice? Like, that's silly. To kill something in order to get rid of your sins, that makes no sense, really. God, you could just ask God for forgiveness, and God could give it to you. Mm. What is with the animal stuff? The rabbis answer that, and Yitz Greenberg has a beautiful articulation of this answer, that the covenant relationship is about accepting humanity where it is and trying to move it slowly, slowly, incrementally in tiny, miserably painful increments towards what it should be. God had to start with the people who only understood animal sacrifice because that was the world they lived in. That was pagan ritual of the time. So God had to give the people something that they were used to for them to have some kind of system of ritual that would make them actually feel and believe the presence of the divine. So that is truly the rabbinic argument for all of this. And I'm talking the traditional, traditional, traditional rabbis of thousands of years ago said, not for God. You think God needs sacrifice? It's for human beings who are so limited, who are so 
infantile that they need that. Now, of course, we don't need it. We've, we've evolved, right? So we don't need it anymore because uh, it got taken away, but like, whatever. Um, like, so we don't need that anymore. Now we have prayer. Like now we've evolved. Now we offer sacrifices on the altar of the heart, right? And that's prayer. So it was a brilliant move, brilliant move by the rabbis, but all of them accept that this, the tabernacle was not for God, that God gave it to the Jews as a gift because God knew they needed something visible, to and focus they on. Allowed in, uh, other than the Kohanim, it's weren't allowed. The, weren't allowed. That is typical science. pagan religion. In all pagan ritual, you brought your jar, your offerings. You brought it to the priest. The priest took it and put it into the. Uh, there was a god, a statue of the god or goddess in the niche, and they put it on the offering bench in front of the idol. The people never saw that happen, and they didn't even know what happened radical change in the ancient Near East is that the Israelites had a book that told them what the priests were doing and what the Levites were doing. Like that, teach them, you shall teach it to your children and talk about it. That was unheard of. For the people to know what was going on behind the curtain? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So, right, so it evolves. And the rabbis understood that this was given to the Jews because we're human and we need a focus. We've had this conversation when we talk about the Torah, when we talk about the Western Wall, when we talk about the ways we still have trouble, we still want something concrete, mm-hmm. right? We still want something we can touch and kiss, right? A place where we touch the stones and people weep against those stones. We still have this real need. And, and, and you've heard me say before how much I envy the Catholics who go in and, ju- and, and like go to their knees or, or lay down in, in the, the shape of the cross. Like, oh my God, that is so awesome. Genuflection. I'm so jealous. <laughs> Holy water. All of it. Incense. We, they, we got it gone. It's gone for us. We love that stuff as human smells and bells. And, and we don't have it as Jews. We're asked to like leave it behind and do this crazy business of just having kind of the abstract, you know, sometimes that works. A lot of times, give me, give me something. Yeah. Right. That I need as a human, as an animal, like to do. Or eat or whatever. Well, we're, we're good at the eating part. <laughs> and then yeah, David. After I, Jews, I have David. two questions. I'm full of bubamices from 70 years of hearing from Jews uh, what is and what is not. And you're straightening me out on a lot of them. So oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's what I'm known for, straightening <laughs> people out. <laughs> you do. You you give us another perspective. One is that we we should not be calling this a temple. It's a synagogue. Correct. And Correct. we don't talk about synagogues ever because they're not. Okay, but, but if I'm going to straighten you out, for real, Reform Judaism called it a temple because Reform Judaism wanted to make it clear we're not waiting for a third temple. This is what a temple is now. So they use temple very pointedly. Everyone outside of that uses synagogue. Secondly, the colors you pointed out on the... The the uh, Torah covers are any of those related to the tribal colors and the gems and so forth? They're, it's all related. Okay. It, yeah, it's all related. David, I've got a feeling that the rabbit hole is not only Melinda's place but mine and Yitz's. Um, yeah. I'm reading and listening to your interpretation of the rabbis as saying charity is really aspirational and the best charity has no motive other than just complete selflessness and giving. And it's trying to get us to that level. Is, is that right? Or is, I, is, is I'm, I'm having trouble to? understanding you, David. I, I'm, I'm not really understanding your words. Something about giving. Yeah. I, could you hear me now? Is it coming? That's in? better. Great. Uh, I'm sort of reading what you said in Melinda's concern with Yitz saying that this is all aspirational. 
that right. the best charity has no motive other than just complete selflessness, selflessness and just giving without motive. I, I, okay, I, I, I don't know how to answer. What I can say, I don't, I don't, I don't really understand the question. What I'm hearing is Yitz Greenberg says that this is aspirational. Absolutely. So do the rabbis. They understand that we do not generally give like this. This is not our ability usually, that this is exceptional and it is aspirational. So it's instruction as to our aspirations. And that yes, we fail most of the time to give like this. When we were in Russia, uh, we attended, well, I went to, he worked, um, I went to a lot of uh, churches, mm-hmm. um, Russian Orthodox, uh, that were being reopened, and a very Byzantine mm-hmm. feel, and I, it always made me uncomfortable that they had this wall, and that the priest, owned, it was only the priest allowed in back, and now you've straightened that out for me. Um, that we started that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but we got rid of it. It was taken, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the idea that you needed to have this priest uh, to intercede for you to talk to God. That was, you know, that was so weird. Um, but uh, one of the things I, you know, we still have the vestiges, I don't know if it's vestiges or not, of doing kissing your hand uh, for the doorpost, for... You know, Vestiges of what? Of this oh, physical, physical kind of uh, um, what do you call it? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I would say that's eternal. Okay. We kiss our children. Of course. Of course, we kiss our dogs. Yeah. So I mean, I think our instinct <laughs> is is to kiss what we love. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's represented by mezuzah, by the Shema, by the Ve'ahavta, and it's represented by Torah. So, I mean, I think that's a, a universal human need is to kiss what we love. <laughs> Magic involved in what? In what ritual? Well, I think of uh, high holidays and the desire to kiss the Torah or touch it with you know, with your book, and people will almost trample one another to get in there. So I'm not sure that's magic. I don't think it's magical thinking. Um, I think there is a component of wanting to touch mystery that is, again, a human instinct, a human need and desire is to physicalize that. Um, I'm not sure it's magic. I don't think people are touching it so they'll be healed. Do you know what I mean? But I understand that it's like, well, it makes no sense. So it's not logical. It's not rational. um, But the the opposite of rational is not irrational. We too often go there, right? The opposite of rational is, I don't know, emotional. You know, it's like there are other ways to respond to things beyond reason. And I see a lot of stuff in religious traditions, whatever religion we're talking about, as being beyond reason. Above reason, if you will. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.